Hi, and welcome to the Sexy Aging Podcast. My name is Tracy Minoknuku, and I'm your host for discussions with super sexy guests on what aging means for them. We discuss health, careers, fitness, nutrition, and living a life with joy and energy. The episodes are in three categories, body, where we discuss the physical changes that are happening as we age, including hormonal health and menopause. Mind, where we unpack the effects of aging and how we view the world. And soul, where we celebrate the gifts of experience and how we want to show up in the second half of our lives. I've been incredibly honoured to interview superhumans across the globe, and I hope that you feel as inspired by their messages as much as I do. So you don't miss an episode of Sexy Aging, hit that subscribe button, share, rate and review and I'll just keep going. It's your support that encourages me to keep reaching out and pushing the boundaries on what aging can mean for us. I like to keep it sexy. So let's crank on with the show. Happy International Women's Day and what an absolute banger of an episode I've got for you today. I love that we celebrate women across the globe and that we dedicate a day to recognise how far we have come. But I also wanted to bring a very practical element to this recognised day and highlight that when it comes to women's health, we still have a long way to go. You've heard of seven degrees of separation. Well, I think in New Zealand, it's actually three degrees of separation, probably because we have a fairly small population and no sheep jokes here. And so I was able to connect with Dr. Samantha Newman through a LinkedIn colleague who I ended up having coffee with in real life. Anyway, we discussed how so many women in midlife experiencing perimenopause symptoms suffer for the lack of information, discussion, education, and even support from their GPs. In this episode, Dr. Sam breaks down the stages of menopause and how we, as women, can prepare for our appointments with our local GPs to achieve the best outcomes for our health and midlife. We also discuss the changing landscape of HRT, hormonal replacement therapy. And of course, we discuss fitness because we're both fitness freaks. Can you do one thing for me? If you listen to this episode and someone popped into your head that you think needs to hear this, can you share the episode with them? My deepest wish is that we are as supportive of the menopause phase of life as we are for puberty and pregnancy. There is still so much to learn and it is a minefield out there. And if you're a Spotify subscriber, there is a poll and a short quiz that I would love for you to take. Let's go. I have been looking forward to this interview for quite a while. I am uh, introducing you to the podcast, Dr. Samantha Newman. Welcome to Sexy Aging. Wow, thank you. The familiar (laughs) voice and it's really kind of, yeah, honored to be here, to be honest. It's so cool because we've met in quite a unique way. So when I came back to New Zealand, I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast. Um, I put in uh, menopause in New Zealand while I was in MIQ because I was thinking, oh, I do want to connect with some other women that are experiencing what I'm experiencing. And obviously, you know, if I have someone to talk to and connect with and find a doctor and do all that sort of thing, that would be really cool. So I put in that and then I was connected to Jeanette Coey Perkinson, who's based in Auckland. Um, She actually came on the podcast. And then I was connected to someone in LinkedIn um, who 
connected me to someone else in LinkedIn, which is Bronda, who is, uh, she won't mind me saying her name here because we're both very open with our conversation and trying to help women. Bronda is a client of yours. Um, you're a, her doctor. And she recommended that I have you as a guest on the podcast. And I have been looking forward to this episode because this is our International Women's Day episode. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sam. I'm going to call you Dr. Sam. Do other people call you that? I think it's like a Kiwi term, but it's evolving. So yeah, um, I still find it really crazy, like being from England, um, you know, introducing myself on the ward to like elderly people as Sam, they'd look at me really bizarrely. So I was always like Samantha. And then the other thing is that people look at me and they're like, oh, you're female. I'm like, yeah, so, but I'm pretty chilled, like whatever. Yeah. But that, hap that happens in New Zealand, like everyone mm. in Australia, they chop your name, right? So yeah. my name's like Tracy and people call me Trace or, yeah. you know, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, if you're a one syllable name, how they, or they add an O in Australia. So if you're like Dave, you're like Dave-O. <laughs> I know, it's a whole culture I never even expected. Yeah, so tell us about your journey from the UK to New Zealand. Like, how did you come to be here? I know that your background, you are a GP, but if you could sort of give us a little heads up on your journey. Oh, so yeah, um, basically it's all because of my husband. So um, I don't know how we ended up coming to New Zealand on our honeymoon, but we did. It, just seemed to not be a discussion we love outdoors and tramping and all that kind of stuff and we came here and heaps of our friends were here and they were happy and loving life and we were working non-stop and for me um being a doctor has always been about experience I've not been in a rush I've just been kind of you know just making sure I enjoy it and we were living out of the supermarket we barely saw each other he was commuting like literally from northwest London to the southeast every day and I said why don't we go to New Zealand? Everyone's happy there. Um, and he was like, okay. And that was it. So he organized absolutely everything. So he had like amazing job opportunities. I was um, an obs and gynae trainee in Northwest Thames. And it was one of the few like run through jobs to consultancy. Um, I've always been into research and I'd kind of started making connections. And then we moved to New Zealand. Um, so we moved to Hawke's Bay, it's where we got jobs, we knew, I knew that I wanted a small rural area and nowhere like London, which is where I was from, and yeah, so I started working there as a registrar, um, loved it, um, doing women's health, but I realised that um, culturally there was quite a lot of differences compared to England, and actually through my patients I um, had opportunities to kind of like um, reflect on what I love most about medicine. And um, there's a really important patient that will always be really special to me. And it was because of her really that I decided actually I needed to do a speciality where I'm not like, shit, I need to get this baby out quick, where I actually <laughs> just am stressed and almost not a nice person because I'm so worrying about what can happen. And so I decided to focus on what I could do for women's health in primary care. And on that kind of about that same two weeks, my grandma was dying in England. So my other friend who happens to be in New Zealand was like, just go back and stay with her. So I hopped on a plane, went back and stayed with grandma for a week and got to just reassess what I wanted to do. And I came back and I changed to general practice. Um, and as part of GP training in New Zealand, you rotate around different areas and different practices. So um I obviously had done quite a lot of women's health and kind of almost built a little bit of a reputation perhaps or kind of was able to work with the women in different practices. And then 
I had an opportunity to set up my own clinic, which was purely because of gaining access to care. So I don't know, it's a bit kind of, I suppose a bit boring, but kind of logistical information is that the way in New Zealand you can see a GP um, is that you're registered and they get paid, the GP practices get paid to look after a proportion of patients. So if you're not registered at that practice, they're not paid for looking after you. And actually, if then you haven't got a GP at your practice that has an interest in what you want to know about, you can't see them. And because there's such a shortage of GPs, that just makes there a bit of a barrier back accessing healthcare. So that's how I started at my clinic and kind of started in essence living my dream with medicine really. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. Actually, a lot of what you've told me, I had no idea. And I guess it's because, you know, I've only been back in the country for a year. So I wasn't sure of all the steps that it takes you to, you know, set up your own practice. Um, now, you're only 36. <laughs> and um, just to give the listeners a little bit more context, um, Dr. Sam and I, um, she's actually staying this week where I live, you know, close by where I live. And we went up to the Mount, which if you uh, follow me on Instagram, you'll see that every now and again, like probably more times than I need to, I always post amazing picture of the Mount and the beach. And so we did a walk together this week and it was a really good way to connect. I don't often get to connect with my podcast guests in person. So it was just super special and um, a really good opportunity to wrap my head around some of the things that I really wanted to ask you Dr Sam and of course I've reached out to different Facebook groups there are quite a few Facebook groups in the menopause area to ask them what questions should I ask of someone who um, practices in this area advising women through the menopause transition so I actually have questions from listeners as well which is really awesome because I feel like we're actually making a difference now so I before we dive into those questions because of your youthfulness, I think it's super important that women, instead of waiting until they come up against the menopause symptoms, that they understand exactly when, what, and how is happening to their bodies. Can you break it down a little bit for us? Um, and you obviously you've gone into sort of understanding more clearly other than a, a normal other GPs out there I can tell you from personal experience you know a whole lot more about the menopause experience than say your typical GP can you break it down for us like what's actually happening to the body and like when does this all start so part of my kind of journey at the moment and passion is actually all about education. And I think we need to start actually educating our adolescents and our teenagers about what's happening and what's going on then. Because I think that actually provides the building blocks for us to understand what's happening kind of in our reproductive years, in pregnancy, then after that period. So perimenopause and menopause. Um, so actually, if you look at puberty and um, we're getting surges of estrogen, so um, we support our adolescents, we understand that their brains aren't fully engaged, that they're learning, this is all new, but really challenging too. We also support our teenagers um, for the heavy periods and we talk about it and we reassure them and we say it's going to get better and then we forget about that. So I kind of always go back to that and hold on to those thoughts about what happened to you in puberty. Um, I'm going to kind of do a little bit of a rapid skip in a sentence through reproductive years because things stabilize. 
Um, we learn how to manage things and we develop coping strategies. Our frontal lobe, like our brains now engaged, we can process more. And then perimenopause hits. And actually, if we go back to looking at what our menstrual cycle is and what we experienced in puberty, it all makes sense. So throughout the menstrual cycle, so day one is day one of our menstrual cycle, which is when we're bleeding. So our hormones are low. We've got, we're bleeding, we kind of feel a bit rubbish. Um, you've got some kind of inflammation going on in your body, but that's a positive inflammation. So actually resting is understandable and um, it makes sense. And then as the menstrual cycle goes on, the estrogen levels peak. So that causes breast tenderness, increasing the lining of the womb. Um, we can get things like bloating, but also we get increased energy and feel happy at this stage before we ovulate. Then we ovulate and some women are able to understand that they feel some pain in their tummy, might feel some mood changes, then hormone levels drop. And why this is so significant in the perimenopause is that these surges are bigger, like the ovary saying, give me a chance, come on, like, you know, I can do this. Um, and so you get more pronounced symptoms. So then if I've said estrogen thickens the lining of the womb, then we get that next surge. So we get heavier periods because the lining of the womb is thicker, um, which also makes sense if we know estrogen affects the brain, we get cognitive symptoms, which we'll talk more about memory disturbance and things like that. It also affects the temperature regulation center of our brain as well. So if we go back to the menstrual cycle, um, I don't know if um, you're aware of like in the nights before your period, you might feel a little bit hotter. Yeah. And, it's and true. That's actually, yeah. And it's actually yeah. normal. That's what our hormones are doing. Progesterone rises. Um, so I think there's an element of normality and then our hormones drop again. Obviously that's kind of a little bit of a whistle stop and a bit quicker than I probably normally explain it. And I quite like diagrams. Um, but I hope it kind of shows that you know what's normal and perimenopause and menopause are then just building on that so then okay from the surging hormones where you get more marked symptom changes then in menopause things drop so I've just briefly said about how you know it affects brain and things well then imagine if estrogen affects all of these areas of the body when it drops they're all going to be impacted yeah. so kind of going from the top down well, we know it affects our hair. Estrogen affects collagen. So we'll get, um, our hair will change. It affects the hair follicles. So our hair will fall out. It affects the collagen in the skin. So our skin gets thinner. It retains less moisture. Um, breasts, um, it stimulates breast tissue. So we notice that our breasts may get smaller. Um, it affects, there's estrogen receptors in the bowel. Okay, so we might get some bowel symptoms as we're coming into this, as we get some bowel changes throughout the cycle. And so I could go on, but that's kind of the gist of how I approach menopause to understand women, how they feel. Yeah, no, I super appreciate that. And when we were out walking, how you brought up the puberty conversation and it just clicked with me. It's like, yeah, you know what? I, li I live with a teenager. So in our house, um, we have a teenager and a perimenopausal woman at the same time. We are literally bookending the um, reproductive cycle in our yeah. own house and you know like and we're okay with her freaking out and making poor decisions and we're just going it's part of you know what what's going on 
in her life and, and youthfulness. But obviously, you know, hormones are affecting that as well. But we don't have the same support and understanding and appreciation for mum. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like, well, I guess it's because I'm an adult. But when you're an adult and you don't know why these things are affecting you, I think that's incredibly challenging. We also spoke about at this time of life, women are experiencing real pulls across multiple factors in their mm. life, which is obviously children, teenagers, maybe they're leaving, but also aging parents. And so we feel like we're constantly having to look after somebody and never really taking care of ourselves. And then when the symptoms really, really impact us, like the day you wake up and you just don't want to get out of bed. Now, I know a lot of women can relate to that, what I've just said right now, that feeling like I don't want to get out of bed. I don't see any good in walking around the house or getting outside and meeting people today because it won't be good. I know a lot of people feel that way and we don't have that same level of support for women um, around those type of symptoms. So Thanks for bringing that up on the puberty front. I do distinctly remember the night before I got my period, when I was getting my periods regularly, um, yeah, not sleeping well, you know, being really hot and agitated and a bit headachey and mm -hmm. yeah, and I knew, and I would get really dry lips. That was another yep. thing, yep. like really dry lips. And then um, it would sort of keep me awake at night and then bang on, sure enough, the next day I get my period. So it's, uh, once you tune into your body, it's actually really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I find it really fascinating. And yeah. I think, you know, when you're looking at um, understanding your body, if you're planning to conceive, you, there are aspects you can look at. Um, yeah. And I know there's some kind of, um, some school of thoughts which um, advocate that you shouldn't be able to know when your period's coming and you shouldn't feel the symptoms because your hormones should, but for me, I just feel it makes sense. You've got totally different levels of hormones and almost that society has impacted our ability to manage that changing level. So, you know, in kind of um, some cultures, when you're menstruating, you go together and you stop, but actually it's not ostracizing women. It's saying, actually, you need to rest. You're really busy. You're doing all of this other stuff. This is an amazing opportunity to rest. Um, we kind of talked about how like, we're, like I'm pretty sporty as well. Fitness is a really big part of my life. And um, being aware of um, kind of exercising in the cycle as well. Yeah. And in the luteal phase before your period, you know, actually all the hormones are going to make you increase risk of injury, increase risk of infection. So actually just slowing down within your training. And um, or I say to a lot of my women who, you know, it's not about exercise, it's about movement. Don't start a new routine then because you'll feel a bit rubbish and it'll be harder to do. And we want to set you up to succeed and not set you up to fail. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and no, I think it's society compounding that you're just supposed to go, go, go. And, yeah. you know, what's a good weekend is being busy rather than just recognizing your body and slowing down. Yeah. No, I really love what you've just said, Ben. And I know that there's quite, there are a few now notable fitness trainers that I follow um, and that I'm in touch with, um, you know, that have credibility that often talk about a woman's cycle. Um, and the you know the best opportunities to train harder and pull away and the rest and anyone that's just like setting up say a six week or an eight week challenge without factoring in those things is like not taking taking into yeah. um, consideration the the importance of science really isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. and all yeah. studies were all done on men and they're done on men yeah. because you can get the stability yeah but actually that's not 50 percent of the population so yeah. um I think it's yeah, if you put it into the context of what the studies show, I think it's really interesting. And yeah, kind of same. Exciting and, field. 
yeah, you and I, and we know of others that could just talk about this like all day long, right? We both love fitness and we all also have our personal fitness training goals, but we understand how our cycle, or in my case, perimenopause can kind of mess with that a bit, you know? And if you, once you understand it, you, you're just a lot kinder to yourself. The goals are still there, but you just understand when to pull away, when to rest. And yeah, I think it's super important. Hey, I'm going to ask you another question. So in your practice as a GP um, and knowing that, uh, you know, word is on the street that go see Dr. Sam if you're perimenopausal. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a good thing. It's a really, really good thing. And I think um, a lot of people will be, well, you'll expect a lot more phone calls probably after this episode, but um tell me like when women come to you um what are the most common symptoms that they're talking about and do you feel that they've got a handle on what's actually happening to them like do they not, do they come to you and say hey I think I'm perimenopausal because I have these things or do they come to you and go I don't know what's going on these things are happening like can you give me some bandwidth mm -hmm. around that yeah and I'm actually going to go even back a step even more and put it into kind of like society context of how the health system works so I'm a GP and I love being a GP and I feel that being a GP enables me to give better kind of perimenopausal menopausal care so for me, it's not just about giving a prescription, but looking at the whole person, but you can't do that in 15 minutes. So actually, as a general GP, if somebody comes and says I'm perimenopausal, my heart, literally, I'd almost be like, OK, I want to do a good job. I can. But this is actually really tough. So I think from the general GP world, it's really hard. And actually, that whole connotation of what perimenopausal means is hard to embrace in that 15 minutes. And hopefully we can talk through some steps of how to break it down to make it achievable and to work with your GP. Um, from my private clinic, absolutely. I get women coming all the time saying, I'm perimenopausal, I'm, I'm menopausal. So I can literally just jump right in. And I um, often get them to fill out a green climacteric score so i can give you one of this to pop on the um on the show notes so it's basically just a checklist of all the symptoms and you rate how you feel with it so common symptoms that i see and because in my private clinics i can just focus on that straight away um i predominantly like cognitive symptoms anxiety and um, temperature changes sleep um fatigue um, inability to concentrate are one component then another component is probably musculoskeletal issues such as joint pains um, and some women actually come with that as a predominant feature and I've got some like really inspiring amazing stories of women that that's been the main kind of symptom that's improved which was for me just was mind-blowing actually um, and then um vulval and vaginal symptoms but not normally in the context of the main presenting symptom of perimenopause um so yeah hot flushes not so much and that kind of it's there's probably a small proportion and it's then causing massive sleep disturbance yeah but actually it's more the kind of and the other things and that's because you know as a gp and um, the long-standing guidelines have always been oh if you've got hot flushes we can give you hrt mm. <laughs> we can treat it yeah. whereas it's the other stuff the perimenopausal things that actually takes a little bit more figuring out 
So in my private clinic, people are coming with this established diagnosis. And for me, it's like, well, if you think you're perimenopausal, I'm going to support you with that. But I'm quite a, I like to say a kind of a conscientious or anxious provider. And that I'm really happy to work through with you, explaining and working with you how your body works and your cycle changes things. But I do not want to miss that inflammatory joint condition. I do not want to miss those kind of like that hypothyroid causing the hot flushes. So I think it's kind of, it's a bit hard to kind of answer your question directly. Um, but I hope that kind of, you know, that makes sense. But then when in a GP consultation, so for 15 minutes, so I'm actually having two months out of general GP because I got super busy and realized that I needed to streamline how I manage these consultations. So I'm pretty honored that I had like a wait list in general GP and I was supposed to be the acute care doctor without enrolled patients. And I had a wait list, which is just- Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So, but I didn't have the approach that I do in my private clinic to be able to support women to make the most of their consultation. So if I kind of, you know, in the ideal world, I'd say go with a questionnaire filled in um, have a chat about what your kind of couple of main symptoms are and be flexible with what your GP's agenda is as well. And why your GP's agenda? That sounds really paternalistic um, because actually your GP will want the best for you too. And, you know, we don't want to just say everything's perimenopause or everything's depression because actually we'll worry that we're missing something as well. Yeah. Um, the other side is, which I just feel is a real honor. So when looking after other people's patients, you're kind of a second opinion, a lot or third opinion or fourth opinion. And they come in and they're like, oh, can I have more sleeping tablets? And I'm like, oh, okay, you're 52. And why would you like more sleeping tablets? Oh, well, I can't sleep. Oh, how well, how long have you not slept for? Oh, about four years. I was like, okay, would you like HRT? Um, yeah. <laughs> obviously I don't jump to it that quickly. Yeah. But the amount of women that I have seen who have had like a diagnosis of fibromyalgia in that perimenopausal age or um, depression, sleep disturbance that I kind of like to go back and say, actually, can I work with you and maybe challenge that diagnosis? I might be wrong, but actually there's something else I'd quite like to consider. Um, and I find people are really responsive um, yeah. because it's about working together yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, and then I hand them back to their GP. I'm like, here you go. Like, have these tools. Go and enjoy working with your GP. Yeah. Hey, that that's awesome, Dr. Sam. Uh, <laughs> Sam. Um, because, you know, like, I, I, the amount of women that I've spoken to that have been recommended um, straight to antidepressants um, versus the HRT route. So... Um, anyone that's listened to podcast episodes with me before knows that I'm a massive advocate for the healthy lifestyle. So, you know, <laughs> into fitness and do whatever you can to manage your symptoms by adjusting your diet. So it's anti-inflammatory diet by being really mindful with the way that you train your body. It's not hit every day now. It's a, a bit of this, a bit of that mindful movement, all of that stuff that I talk about. Um, but it is really interesting that, um, uh, and I'm on HRT, I've said this a few times, there were still symptoms that I couldn't manage just through the healthy lifestyle route. Um, and I'm like really anal with that stuff, right? I go to sleep at this time, I don't look at my phone, I have this whole procedure 
to support my rest recovery and anti, you know, anti-inflammation lifestyle mm. so that I can manage my perimenopause symptoms a lot better. But I still had to take HRT and it took me a couple of sessions with my GP to, to get her to support me through me putting my hand up and going, I've done the research and I've talked to the experts in the UK. <laughs> Can we do this? And she was like, no, I think that we're going to do blood tests and stuff first. And I was like, okay, let me go through that journey because a lot of women will experience what I'm experiencing right now. So I did go on to HRT. What's your take on that? And can we just talk a little bit about the um, sort of negative history of HRT? Mm, yeah, awesome. So um, from a GP perspective, so I trained in the, oh, when did I train? Like, I don't know, 15 years ago. And we were taught, do not give HRT unless there are hot flushes that your patient can't cope with and give the lowest dose for the least amount of time. And that was all based on um, a really big study, which has now seemed to be unfounded, um, on the risks of HRT. So that is the main kind of concerns of most doctors, um, of society, and of our mums and our kind of our whanau and our grandmas who heard this. And it was hugely publicized everywhere, um, huge media releases. And actually, if you look at as a doctor, we don't want to do any harm. We don't want to give you like a heart attack or a stroke or breast cancer when we have explored other, haven't explored other options. So that's why people don't want to take it. But actually, when we look at that study, so that was the Women's Health Initiative. Um, and in 2002, um, it was kind of really advocated um, that you shouldn't take it. But when we break it down, the average age of women on HRT in that study was 63. So you are not no, anywhere near an average age of 63. Um, and it, those um, options of HRT were very different to what we would prescribe nowadays as well. So breaking that down a little bit more. So with respect to heart disease and cardiovascular disease, we know that estrogen is protective against heart disease and cardiovascular disease. One of the ways it's protective is it allows the vessels to be flexible and also prevents buildup in the vessels. So in essence, then you've got less pressure. It's like a pipe. You know, if you've got less pressure in a pipe, things can flow through. So you're less likely to have any problems. So if you think of the average age of menopause is 51 and the average age of women in this study was 63. So then you've got 12 years potentially of lower estrogen where these vessels can get a bit more blocked up and not work as well. So we then know that estrogen breaks this down. If you give somebody with blocked pipes something to release it, it's not gonna go down well. Yeah. Necessarily. <laughs> so I think that it's about looking at the context of what treatment you're giving in what situation. So that's kind of one, one, way of thinking of it. The other thing is um, the options that were given in the Women's Health Initiative were oral estrogen, um, mm. conjugated equine estrogen. So you know what, I do give that nowadays in situations where benefits outweigh risks, but in an ideal world, you'd go for something called transdermal estrogen. Yeah. And so that is estrogen that um, in New Zealand, it's basically like wearing a little bit of sellotape on your belly, um, yeah. on the top of your leg or your groin, and it has a stable release of estrogen. And because it goes through your skin, it doesn't go through your liver 
and it doesn't significantly increase the risk of blood clots or strokes. And if you take it at 50-ish, all the perimenopause, then you're not allowing that build up in your vessels. So not having an increased risk. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the other part of it is progesterone. So we've talked a little bit earlier on about how um, estrogen thickens the lining of the womb. So um, if you are just going to have estrogen, then you're going to end up with a very thick womb. Um, the endometrium makes sense. Um, and we know that when things kind of thicken or grow anywhere, it leads to increased risk of cancer. But we know that progesterone stabilizes that. So therefore, if you give progesterone, you're actually going to end up with a less, lesser risk of endometrial cancer and precancerous cells. So we give progesterone too. And sorry, monologue. That no, it's main, awesome. <laughs> the main progesterone um, in the Women's Health Initiative study were medications called progestogens. So they were created um, years and years ago for the role of stabilizing the endometrial lining. They do not act like the progesterone in our body where, because the molecules are too big. So that's why they only impact the womb. So there's now a newer progesterone called Eutrogestan, which is micronized progesterone. And that I think is a little bit of a wonder drug, to be honest, and I think is really undersold um, because it actually, particularly in the perimenopause, I find it to be really life-changing and not just estrogen, but it crosses the brain, um, crosses the blood brain barrier into the brain, helps with sleep, helps with hot flushes, um, and um, is doesn't increase cardiovascular risk, doesn't increase breast cancer risk, and even some not great evidence that it increases metabolism, insulin sensitivity, and slightly decreases blood pressure. Yeah. When, when, when? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But the, the one question that's still sort of out there is like, who is not a candidate for HIT? Because I also know, I've, I've got some other friends as well that are, you know, really kick-ass fitness trainers. They really understand the whole perimenopause space. And they and they and they can't take HRT for whatever reason, and they know why. So, what what under what situation would you not recommend HRT for somebody? Like, what where are we at today with the science and the support on that? Very very few cases. Really, like it's Good actually yeah, like active breast cancer. Um, we don't have menopausal oncologists in New Zealand. So I'm kind yeah. of doing a little bit, bit of work in that space, trying to link people together and trying to upskill in essence. Um, but actually, um, there is work that Louise Newson's doing and some other oncologists that are still prescribing hormone therapy in women with breast cancer where they feel that the benefits outweigh the risks. Right. Um, and I think it's part, it's more now because of the transdermal estrogen option. So um, you can have that, um, four weeks after having a heart attack you can have um transdermal estrogen doesn't increase the risk of blood clots if you've had a blood clot before you can have it still um so there's migraines because it doesn't go through the liver so it doesn't increase the risk of stroke you can have transdermal estrogen um so there's not many reasons why you can't have it but i think it's looking at, at understanding why doctors are scared of prescribing it 
And I still like, yeah, a large proportion of menopause specialists say it doesn't increase blood clot risk. But actually, if I was to give it to someone and they have a blood clot, I'd be mortified. But yeah. statistically, they may have a blood clot anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think it's about putting it into the whole context um, of what's important to you, like that whole autonomy, you know, you are in control of you and your health. So working out what's important to you. But it's definitely, you know, a discussion to have with your doctor. Um, and there's not many contraindications for HRT. Well, I think this is a real pivotal moment in the podcast episode, actually, because probably even just less than a year ago, there was still a lot of hesitation around the discussion with HRT and breast cancer, right? So I have obviously friends that are breast cancer survivors and they won't touch HRT. They won't even, yeah. in, they won't even entertain a conversation. Mm. And, um, and that's really interesting that you've given me yeah. almost an update of where we're at. And yeah, I know I'm that, a, yeah. But I'm a little bit out there and it's kind of like a bit of a frightening position to be in, in essence, I'm just a GP. But when you look at the statistics, even breast cancer survivors are more likely to die of a heart attack than of breast cancer. You know, if you drink two alcoholic drinks a day, you're more likely to get breast cancer than if you take hormone replacement therapy. Um, I actually decided that I needed to talk to local professionals in this field. And they said to me outright, you cannot give hormone replacement therapy or even topical estrogen therapy to women with breast cancer. And I literally was actually tearing my hair out because yeah. actually the studies have not shown with topical estrogen treatment any increased risk of breast cancer or even really endometrial thickening when given appropriately so I think there's loads of people are scared when you look at it then from a breast surgeon or an oncologist perspective their their whole passion their drive is to protect and manage and treat from cancer so why would they do anything that can increase the risk of cancer in something that they have spent their whole life and working career driving to protect and to minimize. Yeah. Whereas when you then have it from a woman's perspective, if, okay, you had breast cancer, um, say 10 years ago, so had breast cancer at 45, now 55, um, you know, life is really tough, hot flushes, not sleeping. Um, joint pains, can't exercise, put on weight because you're feeling down, you're not engaging with your friends anymore. Um, actually, what quality of life is that? And actually that increases the risk of heart attacks, depression, stress, osteoarthritis. Yeah. Um, but a breast cancer specialist would be terrified about giving estrogen. And that's why I think we need to just all talk a little bit more about the options. I'm not saying I wouldn't be scared or apprehensive, but I think we need to just start talking about it to find out if it's possible to empower women um, and start those conversations going. Yeah. And I'm kind of linking in with some um, yeah, menopause oncologists and I have some meetings with them um, every couple of months just to make sure I'm kind of, you know, understanding what options are available. Um, but yeah, it's a bit like it is a, it's not an easy decision to make, I don't think, for anybody. Yeah, and it's a moving benchmark. It, it feels mm. like it's moving. And, you know, considering that, you know, I only spoke with someone about HRT like eight months ago, and now it's the, the benchmark has moved again, just talking to you, and how much 
faster we're getting on top of you know who can actually have hrt it keep, it's literally shifting and moving quite quickly but it was so slow for 20 years when the you know women's health initiative mm -hmm. said no yeah. <laughs> and then for yeah, 20 yeah. years we had a freaking desert so now it's like yeah yay to to woman empowerment like you said and us really being open and talking about it the first part was to smash the taboo about talking about menopause as a starter and then we can really get on top of how to manage it and the health aspects of it, you know, talking to your GP. So I know we also just touched on, you know, when you go to your GP as a woman and you have 15 minutes, can you just break down the, the points that, you know, for to have a successful meeting with a GP who is not maybe an expert or trained across recognizing menopause symptoms, what can a woman do? What should they do? Um, I think go prepared. Actually, if you can book a double appointment, have half an hour. Um, even you know, in England and where menopause, um, like and there's a really big English doctor menopause group, they still break it down and bring you back. We just got that slight barrier. You have to pay more for the appointment, but I think of it as an investment in your health. That actually, if you as a GP, if a patient that I want to discuss lots about and make a plan has got a double appointment, you can suddenly just sit back and actually enjoy it a little bit more because you're not thinking, oh, I'm going to be late for the rest of my day um, and I want to do a good job. So that would be one of my points is, yeah, book a double appointment if you can. Um, take a green climacteric score with you um, and listen to your GP. Um, and what their concerns are um, and I think say you appreciate there are some risks and that it's a pretty moving field and you can't expect everybody to know everything about menopause um, and actually that it is important to look at other health conditions alongside perimenopause and menopause and that's for me, one of the things that I say about like, it's two parallel roads, like going side by side um, or even like, you know, two lanes and you can go from side to side. They haven't got to be independent, um, but you know, it's really important not to attribute everything to perimenopause because we'll miss things then. But yeah. likewise, you don't want to, you know, women in their midlife and from kind of 40s onwards have way higher presentations to GPs. And um, they, as I'm sure you've experienced by talking to people, um, like palpitations, joint pains, less recovery from injuries, eye issues, just these weird symptoms. But actually, if you can then, you know, in most situations, you can start hormone therapy alongside of managing these things. Um, I even had dinner with a cardiologist a couple of nights ago and he was like we used to give it like 20 years ago for um to improve like prevent cardiovascular disease I'm like yeah great do it now and he was like what <laughs> I'm like yeah um so I think yeah be flexible and go empowered and with knowledge and hopefully you know work with your GP and enjoy the journey yeah Hey, that's what we're trying to do through our conversation today, right? Is to give women yeah. the, the um, confidence that they can go to a meeting, get, have a successful outcome, whatever that is. Just 
go in there knowing how to advocate for themselves. So thank you for those tips. I'm going to put those in the show notes as well. You're deeply passionate about this space, um, just from the conversation that I've had with you today, but also from our walk. And I think that we could have, you know, talked for like half a day um, about our respective experiences. You as the expert, me as the representing woman kind of thing. Um, you're doing something really special now in New Zealand and helping um, the Indigenous women of New Zealand. So can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd be really honoured to. Um, there's, um, I've got a, a lovely, phenomenal, like inspiring and patient who I've been working with for a little while now. Um, she's Maori and I've learned a lot from her. And um, she's connected with another lady and they want to advocate for menopausal health um, in their whanau and in their community. And through working with them and explaining the health benefits of it, they're just like, we need to do something about this. We've talked about the benefits of micronized progesterone, neutrogestan, and um, it's not funded. So um, it's, that's a really big barrier for a lot of women. Um, let alone, you know, when you add the fees of prescription costs and GP fees. So there's a group of fantastic um, New Zealand doctors who are campaigning and have been to Pharmac for the last couple of years to get Utrogestan funded. And these women have said that they would love to be part of that journey and um, advocate for it to be funded. So I'm just kind of, yeah, starting to work with them um, to get a letter into Pharmac for March the 14th, so not long, um, to try and, yeah, get it funded for women. And actually, I think that will be really life-changing yeah. for so many women and not um, just in the menopausal space as well. Um, and we've talked about the health benefits and we know that kind of um, Indigenous women and Maori women have poorer health outcomes, increased rates of diabetes, cardiovascular yeah. disease. So if we can provide them with a tool that improves and kind of Pakia like anyone, if we can provide a tool that's funded, that improves quality of life and decreases the rates of chronic illnesses of which women have more than men over 65 years of age, it just seems like a, a complete, like, why not? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So, um, can we sign something? It's like, is there? Well, a yeah, that would be amazing. I need to get like get writing. Um, so maybe I can. Yeah, we'll have it done by the end of this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> um, well, the, the cool thing, and is I'm I sure think... they would love um, your support, and yeah. um, we will. Um, yeah, or, yeah, I'd be. I'm just a bit, kind of a bit like feel really speechless and really honored to be able to be in this position to be able to work with women um, and to be able to advocate when I'm just like an LGP from Hawke's Bay that just. But it just goes to show that when you're deeply passionate and you connect with people and you mm. really, really care that you, you just, that all the doors open up because yeah. people feel how much you really care about them. And I think that's what women need to know. Like when we come into these meetings with our GPs, we don't, we want to know that they're really listening and that sometimes we don't even know what's going on with ourselves. And so, you know, just having that level of care and you obviously do, uh, that's why the doors have opened for you. And I think you've just got such an amazing, incredible future here in New Zealand for women's health and representing us. It's so cool. Plus you're like freaking fit. <laughs> I love that. 
Yeah, training for your marathon and, you know, you're a mom and so many cool things about you, Sam, that I connected with. And um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We will put all of the links to, um, you know, some of your recommendations, the, you. the, the checklist. And of course, if we can get a link to sign yeah. and support women for oestrogen in New Zealand, that would be amazing. So yeah. let's, let's try and get it. that done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Sexy Aging. Every episode leaves me feeling more educated and inspired. If there is a topic that you would like to hear about or a person you believe would make a great guest for Sexy Aging, then drop me an email, tracy, T-R-A-C-Y, at sexyaging.com or direct message to the Sexy Aging Instagram or Facebook accounts.